Welcome to Mostly Talk, a podcast about business or an excuse to hear from some interesting people. We'll leave that up to you. Find out more at mostly.consulting. Welcome to Mostly Talk. My name is James Bruce, the podcast host. Thanks to Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. It's always great to catch up for him and get his insights and view on the world. This week, we are speaking to Claire English, a veteran of the BBC. Claire's had an extensive career in media, working mainly in radio. Uh, so it's fun to catch up with her and find out a bit about more about her career, sorry, and some of the highlights. And uh, yeah, and we met through TEDx, uh, through through our work with TEDx in Glasgow. So um, thanks for tuning in and find out a bit more about what we do at mostly.consulting. Hey Claire, you okay? I'm good. I'm just trying to get my dog out <laughs> from under the desk, right below me. What he's type of dog do you have? What type of dog? Well, two Jack Russell puppies. Well, they're not puppies. They're now two, but they're very small. Come here. Oh yeah. What are the names? Betty and B. Wow. And they're lovely dogs. We used to have a Labrador, like a proper dog, but now we have these miniatures. <laughs> They're great, but he's very stubborn and he's going to have to get out of here because he's just going to start woofing and yelping if he can't get at stuff. But he scratches the door if you shut him out. It's like... <sighs> I know you're part of like a dog walking community of loads of people who know each other through dog walking. I gotta say, dog walking is the way to do it. You meet loads of people and uh, yeah, it's great. I, there's so many people now that have got two dogs. Yeah, we thought we were ahead of the curve. We thought this is madness, but now everyone's got two dogs. Have you got two dogs? No dogs. Kids. We've got kids. No, no yeah. dogs. Yeah. Oh, I don't know what's more sensible, kids or dogs. I can't work out. I don't know. I don't know. I think you can reason with kids. Dogs are just. Uh, he's he's scruffling around. If he scruffles, we'll just have to boot him out. It'll just add to the pantomime of the whole thing. And, and Jack Russells are notoriously like my dad would call them raking little buggers, right? They just roaming about. Yeah. Yeah, they're great, but they kind of they're quite chill. They'll go to sleep. They'll blob around. Um, He's got his head stuck now. <laughs> Teddy, move. No, 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 don't go under there. All my cables are there. Sorry, this is chaos. I'm going to put my, excuse me. No bother, no bother. I'll just eat snacks. Yeah, he's been given a snack and he's ignoring it. So off you go. Goodbye, Teddy. Good boy. Oh, I'm going to lock myself in here. I'm going to get a scratch at the door any second now, but too bad. <sighs> right, compare what snacks? Did you bring your nachos? I'm got nachos. No, I, I've stuffed. I actually had to stuff my face because I went for a run. Uh, I didn't know where to bring nachos. I can tell you what I like. <laughs> Do we have to list what we like, or what's the thing? What's no, this? I, I, uh, no, it's just a joke. You said you're bringing snacks, so I, I went, rushed down to Lidl's and got snacks with my wife. Oh, bless you. Yeah. Well, I actually had to stuff down my face two, two bits of sarnie. I was out for a run. I thought, I know, I'll buy food while I'm out here. Great. <laughs> Came home and thought, oh my God, wait a minute. <laughs> and have you had, how long have you been uh, it's retired? It's not the right word from the BBC. Retired. <laughs> <laughs> how, long, 
Where did you leave? Why did you leave the BBC? Is that, that's oh, uh, let me think. Oh God, I had to remind myself of that. Was it? Jeez, was it 2015 or 16? Wow. Okay. Yeah, four or five years ago, and it's gone like that. Yeah, it feels like nothing. It's just. And is it? It's quite liberating. I've been in kind of big bureaucratic organisations before. I was there in one for nine years, sort of almost ten years. Yeah. And uh, phenomenal. You know, you learn so much. The best investment. Loads of really good people. But then the longer you're there, like, you know, you see sort of people are a bit grumpy, a bit miserable. There's politics. There's this thing called the four frames of Bullman and Deal. It's like an, an axis like this, and it's like political frame. So you know about politics and business. There's the structural frame. So it's like how, you know, where you are in the rung of the ladder, basically. And in the BBC, there might be eight rungs of the ladder, I guess, or more. Yeah, nuts, right? <laughs> And then there's the HR frame, like your terms and conditions, your final salary, pension, what motivates you, the training, etc. And then there's this one, which I love, it's called the symbolic frame. And that's to do with the culture. Oh. So that's like values. You know, if you see they've expressed their values, this is the values of the BBC, but then you'll see all these non-congruent behaviors with the values. Yeah. And then, you know, people go, well, this isn't what I signed up for. And it takes a long time to work this out. And, and not everyone, yeah. you know, that, that's yeah. the problem, isn't it? And also, um, it's changed because it's had to change. It's uh, <clears throat> it's cash strapped now and it's under threat, you know, existential threat from various political decisions. And uh, there's a lot wrong with the BBC, but by God, there's a lot right with it, too. Yes. It's yeah. really, uh, it's still amazing the range of services that you can get. I mean, I'm a big radio fan, obviously. Uh, so, cause that was my, how I earned my crust. But I've got to say, uh, I feel sorry for people coming into the BBC now. It's not the same experience. Nothing like the experience I had when I joined in 88. Um, when it was very, it was kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it was amateur hour, but it was a lot more free uh, to just try stuff out. Um, I was put on air at a ridiculously early stage, not knowing my arse from my elbow, but you know who my screen husband was for that first venture? A little known talent, Armando Iannucci. Wow. So wow. He, he and I were posting this thing, and I swear, if you hear it back, I think Eddie Mir sent me a sound file of it a while ago. <laughs> and I found like a budgie on trail. <laughs> and Armando was like, oh, oh, oh. I was just like, of really scared human beings pretending they were grown-ups with a microphone in front it's awful so much fun though at the time i guess right yeah huh? was it a lot of fun at the time or never yeah, it was great i mean god imagine getting given a gig where you get a bit more money and you're told hey you can actually broadcast i didn't actually that wasn't my plan because when i was working in radio at first i was a researcher and I, the last thing i wanted was to be a reporter or to be somebody behind the mic I didn't have the confidence and I thought I don't have the ability, I don't have the skills. Nah, that's not me. I'm quite happy, although I wasn't. But anyway, I was telling myself I was quite happy <laughs> doing the stuff behind the scenes. And then someone sort of slam dunks you and says, try this. This is my life. This is what's happened to me. And the BBC is brilliant for that because it does open yeah. doors, even out with the BBC. Uh, you know, it's an amazing passport to, to getting opportunities extraordinary yeah. and the world over everyone knows the bbc it's not as yeah yeah it's, a, it's yeah. such a brand it's incredible people will listen to you if you say you've been at the bbc and rightly or wrongly but yeah it was just an amazing opportunity just suddenly being told you're going on air with these guys we're doing this youth magazine called bite the wax god and it was quentin cooper who was the editor who did a lot of radio 4 stuff subsequently as a presenter he was a real 
presenter monkey. He always wanted to be a presenter. So why he was ever editing it, I'll never know. There was Eddie Mayer. There was me and Siobhan Sinnott, the amazing wow. uh, film critic from Dundee. And there was Armando. And wow. we were just like a bunch of <laughs> idiots. Apart from Eddie, who seemed quite controlled and mature compared to the rest of us. But we were playing. We were playing. We were allowed to grow up on air in real time. Did you think at the time that everything you ever do in your life in the archives, you know, someone could pull out any moment? Did that occur to you? Like you know, there's a legacy there that your no. grandkids will listen to? Or, or... No, 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 no. Incredible, not though. At all. Not at all. No. But yeah, it's, it's funny how uh, how when you're given an opportunity, well, you can either run that way or you can run that way. Uh, yeah. And actually, it's funny because I'm quite risk averse about a lot of stuff, but it's almost like it's too tantalizing, but you physically feel sick. <laughs> you're so like, what did I just say I do? But it's never failed me. It's like an antenna. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> if, it, if it messes up, it messes up. And it's what makes life fun in a way, right? And you'd realise that what's the worst thing can happen? And I've been in risk for 15 years. So that's my game as an engineer. And and you learn, well, the consequences of just saying yes and trying things, you know, it's you're not going to die. You know, you're oh, trying, not exactly. anyone, trying not to offend anyone and just be a good person and see what happens, you know? You've absolutely summed up the philosophy. Uh, it is nobody's dead. And frankly, let's just be a good person and be kind. Be kind hmm. to people and be curious about people. That's it. It's really simple. Uh, yet you'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd be surprised some of the people that it attracts and uh, a lot of amazing people as well. And I have to say, I think there's a kind of generation that's come on now and I feel sorry for them in a way because they don't have the funding. They don't have the, the creative freedom to do what they did, but they're working really damn hard every day. And difficult, even the, the governance and stuff that's, that creeps in over time into big organisations. It's just like it, it kind of takes the creativity out of it in some respects a wee bit. Or... Yeah, but you know, again, in the, the early days, in the sort of Neolithic phase of my career, um, I think they were a lot more pro, you know, they were more proactive, more pro-risk, more experimental, because their generation were kind of more indulgent of let's try stuff. Hmm. Uh, so 80s through to the early 90s, there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on. And then I moved away down south and, and worked as a political reporter for BBC Scotland at Westminster. Wow. And when I came back all those years later, um, it was a completely different place. But then every uh, institution is going to be different after that amount of time. And as you say, yeah. world events, governance, political stuff, boom, you know, the economy, um, just, you know, the vibe was completely different. It was it was professionalised, but it was a bit sad because it had been really professionalised, but it had to be. So I, I feel sorry for the BBC. It's got to be everything to all people. How, and it, how even you, you look at big name talent such as oh, I know I, I like Chris Evans in the Morning Virgin Radio. It's quite good humor and good fun, obviously. And then Graham Norton, a big Graham Norton fan from his TV show, and and like they've all went to Virgin, you know, and 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 they were, I guess, the same sort of era as you have built their careers, really good careers, and uh, out of it. And then I don't know, big money talks, Virgin's huge sponsorship, big brand, and it pulls out the best talent. So they've done all the training and hard the hard graft by the BBC to absolutely that I've got a Chris Evans story actually um okay. I was asked to go down and audition this is just before I moved to London uh to audition for the big breakfast <laughs> and I went through uh the first one I walked into this place in Canary Wharf and I was little miss news person with my wee suit on what age would you be can I ask I'd be I don't know mid-20s mid mid-20s <laughs> And I get down there. No, I was maybe a wee bit older than that, mid to late 20s. 
And I got down there and I remember thinking, this is not for me. This sounds like chaos, what they're planning, because we didn't know what the big breakfast would end up being. I didn't really know Chris Evans. I think he came from GLR. I could be wrong, but local radio in London. I knew he was brilliant. I also knew he was incredibly forceful. He was quite a big personality. And I just thought, I'm doing this for an experiment because I got called down. I didn't expect it. I didn't apply for it did this thing with him and I swear to God, we had a hoot because there was no script. And it was a guy with a camera just holding the camera, you know, and wondering about us. And it was just a shambles. And we were having a laugh. And I was just, I was just completely taking the mick out of him. And we were having an absolute ball. But before I went in, I saw all these models standing there and they were all about, you know, 18, 19. And they were just there because they looked beautiful and they were going to get a job because they looked beautiful and they were in London. And I thought, oh God, even if I wanted this job, that's me out of the market there straight away. You know, the pedigrees of these people, look at them, you know, they're just ridiculous, born to rule sort of aura about them. Went in and did the thing. And then Chris says, he's coming out, I'm not kidding. He came out the room after me and he said, we've got to work together. This is ridiculous. And I said, I don't know. I said, it's a laugh. I said, but I'm, I'm doing news and, you know, that's, that's kind of different. And I think I might stick to that. I don't know. Anyway, I did another audition and my heart wasn't in it anyway, but I didn't get it. And then I remember the lovely producer phoning me up about two weeks later and saying, I'm so sorry to tell you that you didn't make the final cut. And I went, that's fine, Jim. And he went, oh, I thought you'd be a bit more upset. <laughs> I said, <laughs> No, I said it was amazing. And Chris is brilliant. And I said, I think it's going to be an incredible programme, which it was. I said, but it's just not, it's just not me. And the irony is now that would be very me. But I was yeah. so worried about, you know, uh, credibility. Oh, and I do new imposter syndrome at that age would be totally. Would be yeah, I was just out of my depth, but I was kind of laughing about it. Mentors tell you these days that there's imposter syndrome is a great thing because if you embrace it and say, I'm pushing the boundaries, I'm going to do something that I'm going to be proud of, I'm scared. And yeah. then you get that growth and that, you know, you do something really special because of it, you've got the adrenaline. Yeah. Whereas if you just stagnate and you go, well, I'm too scared to this, I'm too scared to that. But that was me. That was me before that, and and you know it's it's rubbish, and that's why I'm really passionate about pushing people outside their comfort zones now because we can all do better, a lot better for ourselves, not for any. Don't impress anyone else. Do to entertain. I do stuff to entertain myself. Am I enjoying this? That's why I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I couldn't do something I didn't enjoy. You, you think being Scottish though, like the essence of being Scottish in a way that you're surrounded by a bit of negativity and a bit of well, never, you know, you'll never be something, you'll never do something, you know. Go the line, don't put your head above the parapet and get on with it and, and just be yeah. grateful for the fact that you've got 40 hours and you're getting a wage. Oh, like absolutely. And my mum and dad kind of oh, sorry, squeaky chair, um, inculcated that as well. They were great, my mum and dad, but they were very much like, You'll be very lucky if you get a nice office job, and that'll be good. <laughs> I was like, kill me now. I remember having an argument with my dad saying, if I'm ever working in an office, just shoot me through the head. And he's going, don't you be so snooty about it. I've worked in an office for years. My dad made managing director, but he, he worked for 34, 13, 40 years in one place. And he, he really worked hard because he didn't go to uni or anything. Mm -hmm. That was not on the table then. Smart kid, but no money. My yeah. mom, out of school at 14, go and work, you know. So their, their whole vista wasn't they were amazed that I even got a degree. They were like, oh, God, you know, but now what? You know, and I wanted to go to art school and they were like, Don't and, do and you would have been the no. first, would you be the first in your family to get a degree? Is that? Yeah. yeah. Um, my sister was a nursery nurse. She, she studied and she's smart, but, you know, we were both kind of not really, <laughs> sounds awful. We weren't really kind of expected to do anything. We we're just like, just be happy and be happy with what you've got. And so there was no big push. There was no, it wasn't middle class. It was very, 
basic upper working class, if you can call it that, even working class um, ethos, uh, work hard, you will get enough to get by and that'll be really good. And I think, doing like, <laughs> that you're like a late bloomer and some of the, some of the things that attracted opportunities your way, if that makes sense, if people saw something in you, whether your values, your energy, your enthusiasm, your humor, from a young age, but even your your humbleness, I guess, you know, you probably had a humility about you that people liked, right? But if you came in bulgy and I demand this, that, and the next thing, do you think it could have kind of, you know, in a way that humility about you probably helped you just a slow and steady build up to the It, it helped me personally had. because I think I think you can get really up yourself if you don't watch it. And mm. I've seen that happen. I've seen people come in and be really Machiavellian and make their way up through the ranks. I will not name names, but there are some people that literally were jaw dropping and I found it kind of distasteful. Yet there was a bit of me, James, that kind of envied their utter brazenness. You know, I was like, oh, they're going for it. I can't believe she did that. You know, and they're like, oh, she's on TV. I can't believe she's managed that now. And then you think, who's the fool here? And then I thought, actually, I don't want to be on TV. There's a lovely quote. I'll, I'll send it to you. I can't remember the, off the top of my head, but it's by an Indian um, general. So I think he was, I can't remember if he was about, I guess the Brits came in, there was the Indian generals and things, but he has this quote about yes men. And it's obviously in, in the terms of a bloke, obviously, but a yes person, essentially. You know, someone says, you're the yes person saying everything yes from above to impress your leaders, but everyone below you thinks you're a twat is along those lines. And yeah. it's like, you know, you'd rather... You know, um, you know, you've got to, you got to be, I don't know, nice to people around you. You can't just tread over people. You get found out in time. So you do a decade. You might get out to the top and be above clear English, but ultimately, do the people around you actually like you? You've got, to, you've got yeah, you got to live in the real world. Um, and the people that I rate are not necessarily the ones that did get to the top. They're the ones that treated you with respect and consideration and kindness, and you know, took the mick out of you but were brilliant, you could totally bank on them. And one of them um, actually sadly just died. And uh, yeah. before he died, it was awful, um, lung cancer. Um, he sent me a, a message because I, I, he'd announced, to, you know, sort of on social media, he didn't want to go through telling everyone. And he was an amazing person. Anyway, he said he had this illness that wasn't going to be beaten anymore and that was it. And I sent him a message and he sent me one back. And it was all this amazing, gorgeous, generous stuff that makes me actually just want to tear up. Um, sorry, <laughs> should have started that stupid, self-sabotaging idiot. Um, but honestly, it's all this stuff about what a laugh we had. Do you remember this? Do you remember that? And I thought, oh, this is golden. This is golden. This is what it's all about. It's not about, you know, oh, yeah, he made it. He made it. He was in TV. He's doing news now. Now he's doing this or she's doing that. It's about, are you a good person? Are you fun to be with? You care about other people. I care about that dog coming back in and sort of get it. If you yeah. mind, like, <laughs> sorry. You're okay, you're okay. Really? <laughs> you, it's the other one. It's Beatrice. <laughs> She's a little less persistent. Off you I mean, go. I'm just surprised you didn't put your laundry away, Claire. You wouldn't do that at the BBC. Oh, no. It's, um, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. This is a warm room. And uh, this, is where it's, this is where it's all happening. Zero, zero. But well, what a phenomenal thing. And then his memories, you, that'll live on for the rest of your life and you'll share his stories with your, your daughter and people around you. And it's like, that's that's he's immortal now because of that. Oh, you know, right? Yeah, and funnily enough, uh, I yeah. met his wife at a social distance very recently and I was just saying, what a privilege. And, you know, it sounds really platitudinous to say that. Uh, what a privilege to meet somebody. I've met some amazing people. He was amazing and he was more amazing 
as he was disappearing from view. It was incredible, incredible. And then he's, he's, he wants to get certain things out of his system and say certain things because he knows that he's not got so much long left in him. Yeah, right? yeah. I lost that really. Sorry, go wouldn't, on. Yeah. Wouldn't you just kind of love to bottle that ability for us all to not wait till the last minute to say stuff? Uh, and to, to right. really, uh, really connect with people. I, I'm sounding like some cod psychologist. I, my, uh, my dad died three years ago, and I shit you not, clear. It's just like, well, you know, this is it. You know, you only get one chance at this. And I wish my dad talked more. He's a big, humble farmer, didn't say much. When he did speak, he, I listened. And it's like, wow, I wish my dad was on a podcast. I wish my dad had a book. And it's like, well, fuck it. I'm going to just get my brothers and I'm going to wind them up, get them. I don't drink anymore, but I'm going to get them drunk occasionally. I'm going to get them to say stuff that dad said, and I'm going to write it down. And really? then I'll pass that to my kids. And I don't give a shit if the world sees it. I don't want the world to see it. It's for my kids and their kids. Yeah. And that's the legacy, right? And that's what's, you and know, you, and then pass on the lessons. You know? But you're also, you're a walking embodiment of your parents' values, like it or lump it, you are, which is brilliant. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's still some things that I think, I cannot believe I'm thinking that, oh God, that's so dad, <laughs> that was so mom. And I'm adopted, so that's about conditioning, isn't it? That's wow. about the way they live their life and their values. So Did it being adopted, did that affect your mindset? Did you ever wake up one day feeling different? Did you ever like feel sad because of it? No, um, I think uh, it's it's really disappointing to a lot of people that they always say, that's fascinating about you, tell me more. Have you been in touch with your birth parents? No. <laughs> Uh, how can be ours? No, that's not true. <laughs> that is not true. Um, do you know what it was? It was a bit of a, I kind of, I always knew I was adopted and my sister's adopted and my brother-in-law's adopted. Your parents, your parents say from a very young age, you're adopted, were you labelled? I never didn't know I was adopted. So I think I came to the family when I was about three, four weeks old and there was never a moment when I remember not knowing. Were you an ugly baby, Claire? I was a fat bitch, <laughs> yeah. I was, I looked like Bernard Manning. <laughs> I was that Michelin tires and big black curly hair. I looked like a fright. It was really horrible. When I got to about three, the flab fell off because I started running about and annoying people, <laughs> which was my default setting. <laughs> and their ears were bleeding from about three years. Of <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was a horrible looking baby. My sister was the, the oh, she was like an angel from a Botticelli or something. Are she you first is, or second? What's your? I am the second. So she's oh. my big sister. But the pictures of my sister as a child, she's she's glowing. She's radiant. And then there's this fat, sausage-munching, greasy lardo. That's me. That's me. That's me as well. I'm the second. Do you not think sibling rivalry is fascinating? I'm the second one. And I'm the, I'm the one that was competitive. I'm a wee gobshite. But it came later in life. But I was always winding people up behind the scenes. Well, no, you see, here's the funny thing. Although I was gobby, I know it's amazing, isn't it? Not me. But I was gobby and I always had a view on something. They were like, literally, oh, God, please stop thinking aloud. My sister was the one who was very quiet, very lovely. And, can I help rent house? And I was literally like, yeah, screw that. <laughs> I'm out of here. My sister, can I help? She was really virtuous. She was bloody sneaky as well, because she was the one that was quite devious. She would wait till mum and dad were doing something, and she once poured a whole tub of milk over my head at the dinner table, knowing that I was going to go thermonuclear. So she did it, and I went, yeah! and you know who got into trouble? Huh? And she was like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what You picked it up, you put it over my head. My mum said, there's no way she'd do that. And I was like, oh. Oh, so years later, we talk about that. We talk about, you know, just 
how she got away with stuff. She was amazing. So she got her own back. It was like a stiletto going in under the ribs. You wouldn't see it coming. You were, oh! But we were, we never kind of, um, well, we did like each other, obviously, but we weren't that connected when we lived in the same house. It was only when she moved out and uh, my two nephews were born. I started oh. really liking my sister. And now I adore my sister. I adore my brother-in-law. We're, we're brilliantly connected. And even just a common ground, you can talk about having kids and having been a parent then and you've got, you know. Well, and, even that, I was, I was at um, college, but she had kids quite young mm. and she hadn't gone to, she'd done a bit of further education, got uh, an HND, uh, did child sort of care stuff and ended up working for NHS, which she's still doing 40 years wow. on it. Amazing. Um, but yeah, she had a completely different path from me, but mm. it's funny, we've, you know, through all sorts of things, we've grown closer and closer. And especially after mom and dad dying, um, yeah, that's that's drawn us closer together. But no, we were not big me because she was four years older than me and she wasn't really that interested in me and I certainly wasn't interested in her. Uh, did, we were just did, sharing a house. Did you did your sister and your parents listen to your, your radio work and listen to it every day and feedback and stuff? Well, well, right, here's the other thing. And I'm kind of pleased they didn't um, because it's a bit like... Yeah, that's embarrassing. My mum and dad never talked about it. They just said somebody at the church mentioned they'd heard you. And I get that occasionally. Uh, or, you know, something weird. Or I'd say, oh, I've got to go and do such and such an interview. And they go, that's nice. And I think they have no idea. Okay, that's fine. Because it's keeping me kind of grounded as well because they're not mm. getting overexcited. My sister, she was like, la, 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 la. Too busy with her own. <laughs> she was like, yeah, that's great. So nobody paid any attention. <laughs> Which was good because actually I didn't I wasn't crying out for it. I had enough attention. I was getting a nice job. I was doing a nice job. I didn't care about people going, God, that's amazing, you know, well done you. Um, no, but when my mum and well when my dad died, we found all this stuff because my mum had Alzheimer's uh, laterally no, and she survived my dad by quite a bit, which is often the case. And we found, oh God, it was like, have you ever seen Cinema Paradiso? You know, that no, before my time movie, I don't, I don't know. Um, and at the end, there's a heartbreaking scene where uh, the, the little boy who's gone to see the movies with his projectionist friend, the older guy, has realised that the guy's taken all the outcuts of all the kisses in all his movies that he censored when they were young and he spliced it together for this boy as a sort of parting gift as he's dying or he's dead. And it was a bit like that because <laughs> I found this big scrapbook and it was full of stuff. I had no idea my parents were collating this. My mum was probably doing it more than my dad. About your career, sorry, or about, yeah. about, yeah. About what I'd done, and I was like, oh. And so proud of you though, right? Because Really you proud, but you know what? You never guessed it, because it was like, you know, <clears throat> a, a bit of it, sometimes it annoyed me, because I said, oh, gosh, guess I spoke to it. And they were like, yeah, right, okay. And they, <laughs> it's literally like, that's the salt. And it was, oh, okay, right. <laughs> you know, we weren't a family that were, um, we weren't being modest. It was just the way we were. We were just like, yeah, that was that. That was work. That was what hmm. we did. And it's good. Good that it served you well. I'm sure it just kept you yeah. like grounded, as you said. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But again, it's who you work with and who you mix with. And I kind of credit not giving a toss about what people personally think of me, especially when you're broadcasting. Uh, down to another BBC <clears throat> guy, Kenny McIntyre, who was um, 
oh, incredible. He was a political correspondent and he was a real loose cannon, a very, a real character. Anyone who worked at Radio Scotland or politicians knew him all. He had friends in every party. He knew the inside track in every single government minister. He knew exactly what was happening. And I remember when I went down to Westminster in 1993, just after I got married, and uh, Kenny just said to me, don't treat them like they're special. They're not special. And they like it if you don't treat them if they're you know, as if there's something else. He said, you'll get more out of it. And I just watched what he did and thought, yeah, you're right. I'm just going to take the mick out of them or I'm just going to say, get stuffed if they say something stupid to me. And that that was brilliant. It was quite empowering. But Kenny was a, an absolutely incredible journalist. He just had a, such application. Every morning he was in that place about four o'clock. He didn't have to. He wouldn't leave till about nine at night. He'd maybe go for a run. Uh, and he would just go through this contacts book thing of, I've got to phone these people, keep on top of stories. I've never seen anyone follow up on things so assiduously in my life. So he was an incredible role model and so bloody funny and such a cheeky bugger and so inappropriate, so on PC. He'd be dead today. HR would take him outside and shoot him. No. Just absolutely brilliant. He was a total maverick. Man. Where did he get this from? Did he was he a kind of a rough upbringing or uh, something about him? He was a brickie before I think that's wow. what I learned. He came from Mull, and uh, he just had a brilliant way with people, and he was great at s sniffing out a story and getting people to confide in him. He and curious as well. He's just curious and stuff. Curious, right? curious, smart guy who's just had this incredible network and this charisma that. I'll never forget, John Major was the, the Prime Minister. And I remember being with Kenny, I was I? Yeah, I was down at Westminster and Kenny had come down, flown down from Scotland because he was based in Glasgow and Mull. And uh, he came down and he said, we're gonna do John Major. And uh, he shouted something and John Major was trying to get away from a lot of people to go up to the Sky newsrooms to do a pre-record. And we were downstairs in the BBC. And Kenny said, Oi, oi, John, John, you said you talked to me. And he said, Not now, Kenny. And he says, I hope your effing cricket team mess up big time. At that point, John Major just turned around and exploded and went, All right, you win. <laughs> <laughs> it was really fun. But that was Kenny. He was so rude. He, he just used to go up to John Redwood and people you a wall of paparazzi and stand, stand out the crowd, right? And say something that's he really good. No, he's the guy that everyone's waiting for because he's showtime, you know. No show without punch. He'd turn up. He would absolutely so irreverent. It was just brilliant. He would just puncture. But he wasn't just a fool. He wasn't a fool. He was really smart. He knew the stuff. He knew how to get to people. He knew how to get at people. He was always massively generous, though, and just a hoot, an absolute hoot to, to work with. Oh, for a Kenny these days, you know, what, a, what an amazing person. Uh, where is he? Do you know, has he passed away? Or is he... He's oh. dead. He died oh, when I was um, working down in Westminster, and it was a really, I'd just come back from a holiday and got some, some of the friends from Scotland phoned, and he'd been running. He went out for a run and he collapsed, heart attack. Um, workaholic, and, though, worked hard, too hard. Workaholic, uh, workaholic and did run, as I say, but, you know, didn't really look after himself. Drunk like a fish, or? Hmm? Drunk like a fish? Or? No, no, I think he did drink and he gave that up. So the running came in then. I'm not sure, maybe I'm being unfair, but no. Um, just ate rubbish, <laughs> I think. Well, certainly when he was in the office and drove himself too hard. But he just loved it. He just absolutely was buzzing every day. And it was a joy to come into the office and say, what is he going to do now? Who is he going to upset? Who is he going to offend? But I'm putting that in inverted commas because it was fun. It was funny. People didn't take offense. They literally, John Redwood, who never smiles, you know, the, the Vulcan from the Tory party, 
he was in fits. He just used to say, please stop it. I can't concentrate. You're, you're really annoying me. Because he would just sledge him from the side if he was doing a, a TV interview for a competitor. Kenny would just go, say, look at you. Look at the state of you. Look at the state of your face. You're a you boss. You know, it's funny. You know, it's funny. So like different cultures, they don't understand our humor, right? So the Americans, the Dutch, you know, mm -hmm. Japanese people, Chinese people, they're all very different. There's a book. Uh, I don't know if you like. Oh, one. yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Yeah, yeah. And she went, Erin went on to write a book with Reed Hastings, who wrote a Netflix book. I don't know if you've, it's called No Rules Rules. I'll send you. No, no uh, you've talked to me about this, but I kind of fancy that as well. I'll send, yeah. you, I'll send you a copy because I give a copy of the book to, a book to our podcast guests. So you can have a book. Uh, so I'll send you a copy, but it's it's phenomenal. It's like, uh, well, you know, the culture map and how people are different. So it's like, how did that, how would that translate? You know, if he had to go and do a political piece on a Japanese politician or a Dutch politician <laughs> and some manic Scotsman just shouting <laughs> abuse. Like. But the funny thing was he had the charisma to cut through that. He would mm. find a way in. He'd find something about them that would connect. That That is his chameleon. Oh, a chameleon, I guess, right? You'd yeah. Be quite yeah. yeah, very much so. Uh, just admirable in so many levels and disastrous in so many others. What a mess he was. <laughs> he used to walk about with his shirt all stained and the tail out and his, he had false teeth and he used to get them out and run around the office with them like Castanet. <laughs> it was so on PC. Uh, there, was a, there was an incident. <laughs> where he literally was struggling with me on the floor of a studio there was honestly there was this sounds much seedier than it was but it was just the way he was he jumped on top he was like yeah he thought it was really funny I was like get off and he's going oh no 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 and he started taking the, the making he was shouting the next thing the door opens and the then controller of BBC Radio Scotland walked in with a, a whole retinue of people behind him I think there were some Japanese people there and he said, without blinking, this guy said, and he was brilliant, this guy as well. He just looked down and he said, um, and we've got, this is where they record, uh, this is where they do the lives and the recordings. And if I'm not mistaken, that is our political correspondent, Kenny McIntyre. Uh, and he said, oh, hiya. He's still on top of me at this stage. And he said, and if I'm not mistaken, this is one of our newer recruits, uh, one of the producers from the newsroom, Claire English. I went, no. <laughs> they walked back out. <laughs> <laughs> We were crying when they were, were going, what just happened? <laughs> it was just, it was so surreal. Nobody <laughs> said anything. Nobody said, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, is, there a, is there a book on Kenny McIntyre or a book? I tell you, he's got a lot of friends in high places and there absolutely should be the Kenny Chronicles because it's flipping, I mean, it's a life and a half. It's an easy way to write a book, right? I could just do a podcast with everyone who loved them and then... Get the transcript, put a chapter each, and then there you go. Bang. But you call it the trouble with Kenny, and then you just dot, 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 because, oh, God, it was fun. The trouble was just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I'll be, I've, I've got, like, maybe about six book ideas. I'm trying. I'm in the process of mapping out four or five different books, and it's like, well, there's another one. That's, mm -hmm. Once you start doing it, it's quite addictive. And you but get, the podcast is good for that, though, because I think, you know, a book requires a hell of a lot of time investment and rewriting, and who knows if it will go to <clears> publication or where you're going to self-publish. Whereas with a podcast, you can you can go in, go into the dissection of the chapters and you can do it over time. And it, it's just right, here's one for you, so clear, right? On LinkedIn, okay, I, I essentially blog. I continually write stuff. I've written a diary of starting up a company, and yeah. there's hashtags, so I can hit a hashtag and it pulls up everything I've written of the last nine months. Pretty cool. And then I could I could either get a bot or get you know I can go into Fiverr and pay someone to download it all, put it into a, a, some sort of structure. I can look yeah. at it and then go. 
and then work it from there. So I've kind of taken yeah. notes over the last nine months about business, about culture, there you about go. family. And so I'm, I'm kind of writing a book as I'm going. And that's a clever way to do it. It's contemporaneous notes uh, instead of like thinking, oh God, I've got this big you know, thing ahead of me that I've got to build this. Now, where do I start? What do I leave out? No, you're just, you're chronicling your journey and you're doing it in sort of real time. You know, do you know Simon Sinek? You must have heard of him, obviously. Yeah, yeah. He's got a, a Twitter account that had 250,000 followers, for, which I think for him is... <laughs> is well, I think I think it is for him He's because he's millions, right? Anywhere he is, he's millions. But his Twitter, he was just tweeting like little messages every other day. And then his publisher said, What's, what about this Twitter account that you've got? Can I have a look? And then they came back and they said, well, here's a kid's book. We think you could write off the back of your Twitter tweets. So you didn't yeah. have to do anything. It's like, there's a book. There's another couple yeah. million for you, Simon. That, that's what you dream of. Somebody going, oh, the stuff's all there. You won't actually have to do Because basically, I know journalists, we're very lazy. Or, you know, you're human, we're though. very you're lazy. Human. We're all human. We just think, let's do the, the fast way of doing this with the least effort. And then even, so this podcast, you can get a bot that takes this transcript from the text. If we're, we're too Scottish to be understood by bots, I believe, but it'd be like... It's challenging, isn't it? <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> I'm bad enough if I use the phone and dictation. And I've sent some really obscene messages to people inadvertently because I haven't checked. And I thought, hmm. oh God, what is that? <laughs> you can, there's this, I use an app called Subtitle, which subtitles things. Oh. And it just doesn't understand me at all. Oh. So I spend uh, I spend at least half an hour an hour review and I'm dyslexic as well so I make all these mistakes and then oh it's just a mess. Whereas yeah, interview is someone who's got a nice accent on them and all of a sudden it's perfect for them and it comes to me and it's just like this gibberish. <laughs> <laughs> no, no gibber on gibber on we all gibber on. It's storytelling. That's what it is. That's what that's what's brilliant because it connects us. We're telling our stuff. We're, we're getting it out there and we're we're connecting with people that have got the same kinds of experiences or maybe they haven't maybe they, they don't get to be in your world or my world and they think oh it must be amazing and then you realize, oh, oh yeah it can be amazing but an awful lot of it's just plod like everything else but it's what you make of it who you meet along the way and what happens to you and, and it's serendipity as well isn't it it's serendipity is such a beautiful word i love that it's one of my favorites but did you did you find would you describe your life and your career as serendipitous did you you were you focused did you want to be no, on a never, podcast that... absolutely not no no um a total uh, lack of any structure um i just like the being in the moment and that's what it was all about and yeah i was really lucky right from the get-go at bbc scotland with that you know doing the the youth program uh just stuff once they they kind of got me things kind of happened but I suppose I had to have the skills to be able to do it for them to say yes we want you to take this forward um so I can't be full modest about that I'd learned that but that was hard work you know I wasn't happy being in front of a microphone for a long time but then it became you know what that's where I'm probably most comfortable I love mm -hmm. being in a dark studio not thinking anyone's listening but thinking people are listening but anyway it's no it wasn't planned none of it was planned I was very very lucky I was in the right place at the right time. I had the right attitude and I, I fit whatever those people needed at that point. But I was curious and I would always, always say, okay, I'll try it. Uh, and as we were saying earlier, it's just one of those things that if you don't try stuff, what's the worst that can happen? Nothing, because that's exactly what's going to happen. Nothing. If you don't nudge yourself out of that comfort zone. And it's not pleasant, especially for someone like me. I'm very risk averse. And um, no, I, haven't, I had no cunning plan. 
You're listening to Mostly Talk. If you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a review? Thanks for listening. Now, back to it. You know, we're Scottish, okay, so we're notoriously tight, okay? And uh, That's podcast. Not I absolutely am not. I'm the opposite. I'm stupid with money. <laughs> <laughs> but now, now anyone can be a broadcaster, right? You can, for free, you can podcast. And, and if you've got a you know, passion in stamp collecting, you could do a podcast about stamp collecting. If you got a passion about, you know, I don't know, the NHS and what, you know, what you, you want to interview nurses, you could do a whole series on that. And all of a sudden you'll attract so much opportunity and people into your life who have the same passions and beliefs as you. It's a fantastic shop window that I didn't have when I was young. <clears throat> so I feel in a way, uh, young people, it's harder to get into the media, the, the sort of traditional media, but who needs it anymore? Because I really think, you know, the empowerment of being able to speak directly to people and connect with them is mm -hmm. amazing. It's still brilliant to have the Channel 4s, the stuff like that, you know, the, the quality of yes. the BBC, the World Service, extraordinary. But also, how connected are we? And we shouldn't be worrying about the negative side of social media, the sledging that goes on, the stupidity, the, the racist rubbish that goes on there, the sexism. Screw that. Just you think that'll settle in time? Do you think that'll settle in time? Because the social dilemma thing, it's like, uh, for me, I, I watch the social dilemma and it's like, I can see all these things, the addiction, the, the increase in, uh, you know, young females who commit suicide, the fake lips, the fillers, the, you know, the the influence and, and how detrimental it can be to some people's lives. But then I'm like, well, on the other hand, I am now educating myself on a daily basis. I am, I LinkedIn such a positive platform because it's regulated, actually. It's got values. It's got a policy. If you start laying into people and being Twitter-esque or Facebook-esque, et cetera, you know, it'll be regulated. And I, I think it is, it is well-placed and very people, people are prim and proper. It's a professional network but then you'll get builders you'll get nurses on there you get teachers you get yep, leveler. it's a great leveler but yeah i think we've got to be respectful and and learn to use this amazing platform more carefully just no with more um, consideration not carefully who wants to be careful you want to have fun as well but you want you want to be considerate of other people and their feelings there's a bigger educational job to be done especially with young people about where to you get your self-esteem uh is it reflected by by your peers and why are they thinking that and why are they getting that amplified from certain people in social media social media is not all bad it's how you use it yes brilliant look at us i mean who'd have thunk it even 10 years ago oh we'll be sitting and we can have this conversation on a screen and it will feel like you're right beside me and the the sheer joy of being able to just busk a podcast out of something like this which i've done two series of my own and you just think it's not difficult. All the tools are there. It's such an enriching experience. So we, we must watch. We don't talk it down too much and say, you know, put the emphasis on the negative. And then there could be someone in Japan who likes to hear what's happening in Scotland or somewhere in New Zealand or Brazil. You know, I'm connected to people from my travels and things that have, you know, helped amplify my message across the world. And it's like, yeah. that didn't cost me anything. And now I'm, all of a sudden I've got new friends in bloody Mozambique and all sorts love of it, Love it. See, I, I'm like you. I love that. The more the merrier and just the more diverse. And I just think the other thing is to avoid that thing of just staying in your bubble and staying in your, your lane all the time and not ever looking out to see what it's like for other people, because yeah. you know, where are you going to grow from that? You're just going to just, you know, embed all your biases your unconscious biases all the stuff your prejudices just can confirm the stuff that you want confirming and frankly i like being challenged and i like to i make myself read stuff that i don't really want to read and i find maybe politically or you know morally oh no 
what are you thinking? But I need to kind of know what is that mindset? What produced that? And is there any any credence to this? You know, so to be curious, I suppose. And then even just that question, what happens if the reverse is true? It's like, you know, and, and challenge yourself on a daily basis. But I, I find like we're all global citizens now, or we can be if we want to be. And, and you realize the more you speak to people from all over the world, it's like, well, we all have the same drivers. We all want to take care of our family. We want to be, you know, have a nice, healthy life and as long a life as possible and, and not have conflict and that nonsense. And and it's like, we're all exactly the same. And, and that's why I think, you know, the Black Lives Matters thing, it's, you know, people feel empowered to express themselves and quite right, you know, speak yeah. up. and and it's phenomenal now that you can connect and find commonalities with people all around the world and regardless of race, sex, you know, whatever. And it's, I think it's, it's such a cool time to be able just to go, well, hold on, I want to go and find out what's happening in America and you can do it in real time. Absolutely. And you, you can become an expert. There's so much resource out there for you to learn and to explore yeah. uh, culturally, politically, you know, scientifically. I'm bonkers about science now and I was rubbish at science, but now I just can't get enough of it. And I, I love people that are great communicators in science. So, sorry. Harry, Harry, a sapiens, the book about history. Yes, yes. So I, I've got the picture version. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, he's, he's really done uh, Homo Deus. Like, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm maybe 30% through it, but it's like, wow, you know, this is the future. This is how, you know, he's such a genius, you know, and, and he's such so well researched and referenced. And and it's, well, in some ways it's scary, but it's inevitable that as humans will progress. You know, if we were, it wasn't that long ago we had the steam engine. Yeah. You know, and, and and the book I love is um, Daniel Susskind, A World Without Work. Oh, yeah. I have not read that, but it's on my list. A really nice one. And it's, it, I can, you know, you can read it in a, a weekend or two. And it's, it's like, it's really close to my heart because it's like 30, sorry, 80% of jobs are in agriculture. Then 80% of jobs are in heavy industry. So Clyde side shipping, manufacturing. Then it's 80% of jobs in service industry. And, and then in the future, you know, could potentially because of automation, you, know, you see all these busy Amazon drivers and 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 people, you know, click and collect all these things as industry because of it. That could all be displaced. It will be displaced in the next five to ten years by autonomy. And and then the, the other thing is, you know, your daughter goes off to be a lawyer, and then you think, well, it's a job for life. So you're a lawyer, but a team of thirty lawyers can be displaced by one lawyer and a bit of software. Yeah. And that's happening now, and it's like. Ah. But but I think, well, I mean, we don't know what the future holds. That's that's the whole thing about being comfortable with being uncomfortable and looking at a future that you don't know what, what kind of jobs are going to be there. I just think there are a lot of opportunities as well. And awesome. you know what will never disappear? Um, human skills, core life skills, like being able to connect with people, to convey your ideas clearly, to work as a team, to problem solve. This is all stuff that, uh, yeah, you can get some problem solving. Of course, AI is very intelligent, but you know what? There'll be human things that we always need and probably caring for people and listening to people because, yes, you can replicate that. But is that the same as being heard, you know, mm -hmm. properly listened to? You can hear someone, but you're not listening. So I wonder how far that will go. Definitely, there will be a transformation technologically, but I still think there'll be core basic human life skills. And that's what really interests me, that we will never lose that propensity. We may, hopefully, we'll develop a bit in our thinking and become less yes. stupid about being so factional with uh, you know, race and gender and nationality. I can't bear it. I find it all bizarre. I 
I agree, and it's it kind of it's almost what well, xenophobic is maybe one word for it in places, but uh, you know we're Scottish, we don't have to go into it in a lot of detail. <laughs> but it's like uh, that road, will we? <laughs> no. But I I think uh, the world without work it comes to a nice conclusion and sorry to ruin the ending, but it's like as you've said, is it's what it is to be human. So creativity and sport, so arts, you know, empathy, you know, all these sort of beautiful things that the essence of being human yeah. will. You know, it'll be careers in that. You know, we'll celebrate art. We'll celebrate music. We'll have restaurants. It'll be really vibrant. Culture will come back in spades because of because of this. And there'll maybe be a universal income. If it's supported, that's the point. And that's what I feel a lot. You know, I did a lot of arts broadcasting and stuff. And yeah, I just feel so, uh, and for food as well, for the food industry, <clears throat> it all needs to be supported and valued. It's all very well, you know, mouthing these platitudes about, yes, these are incredible. We must keep these going. Put the money where these things are. We're now in a post-industrial, post-service society now. We're, we're post-COVID nearly. Mm. So we need to start thinking, where's where's we put our attention? If it is those sensual pleasure things and arts and things that feed your soul more than you we're know, we're optimists, right? And we know that we've 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 craved it so much. You know, the live music, the you know, street theatre, the Edinburgh Festival, etc. So that's got to come back with such resurgence. You know, when people come out, they'll go, "Wow, I appreciate my waiter now." You know, I'm not going to give him a hard but time. Long though, that worries me too. That there's a, a propensity in human beings to gloss over all the bad stuff from an era because they did it with the war as well we've done it with the war the second world war uh that where people just remember it coming out of it and the good stuff that came after and it's like yeah it was bad but it's kind of in the very distant past and i think we've got a propensity to do that so that we can allow ourselves to move on and we shouldn't because what would really kill me after all this weird year um, is that we don't take something big out of it and change the way we think about the future. Do you know, I think that's the beautiful thing about communication and people like you is that we're we're big mouthy gobshites and we can make a point and kick up st- stink and make sure it does sort yeah, of have... Yeah, I hope so, but I again, we can wang on too much. It's who, you know, I guess it's how you're doing it and who you're doing it with. But yeah, I absolutely, you know, I love the idea that we've got a very, uh, it's an uncertain future, but there are a lot of opportunities out there. And that's, I can't, you know, for I am quite um, a glass half full person, but I have to say I don't feel particularly uh, down about the future prospects. I think, no, we can do better. We can learn from this stuff. And if we don't learn from this stuff, what a squandering of an opportunity that is. We'll never have anything like this again. We may have another pandemic. We may have other health crises or incidents, but this has been an extraordinary year. A very, it's almost like a bizarre gift because we've really had to look inside ourselves. Massive, yeah. And, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get the chance to do that again and press the pause and lots of really awful things have happened. People have lost their lives, people have lost their livelihoods. It's been hell and mentalness, but- The cracks in societies are kind of open up a wee bit and and that sort of the care and the elderly and and the mental health stuff. And it's like, but we've got to learn from that and and do something about it. James, I love the idea that now that's in plain sight. Nobody can ignore that. Now we all know where the fissures are, so we can't pretend we don't. So now what are you going to do about it? That's it. And that's really close to my heart because I'm bipolar and and I, I, because I started up a company, I, my wife was pregnant, not, you know, bless her, (laughs) you know, but um, that was a stress. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, starting up a company is stressful. COVID was stressful. I was arguing with my family. I never argued with family ever in my life, you know, but because we were so far apart and they were rural country bumpkins and I was in the city, we had disagreements on stuff for the first time in our life. And, and that drove me to hypomanic episodes, you know, full-blown breakdown, seeing psychiatrists, 
And then it's like, wow, what a service that is. Well, you know, to have that in society. And then I've picked up books I've learned from the best people in the world when it comes to bipolar syndrome. Uh, so this one I love, it's called Touched by Fire. Yeah, I kind of fancy looking at that. Yeah, very interesting. Manic yeah. depressive illness and the artistic temperament. Incredibly so, creative, uh, you know, vibe from it. Yeah, amazing. You have been surrounded by them in your life, I guess, because you're yeah. in creative things. But, you know, Rabbi Burns, uh, T.S. Eliot, Hemingway, Van Gogh. Uh, Any uh, women? Come on, women in there? Come on. Sylvia Plath. I was getting to them. I was getting to them. <laughs> Sylvia Plath. Uh, Carrie Fisher. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, Carrie Fisher, yeah. John Cleese. Um, <laughs> You know, and the list goes on and on and on. And and then there's so much stigma. You know, I'm, I'm a man, management consultant. I'm meant to be McKinsey Caliber, an MBA from Scotland's top, top business school. But yeah, I'm some bipolar nutter who's been on social media for the last nine months. <laughs> and then some people you just... You can be everything. You can be all things. That's it. I think we should stop trying to put ourselves in boxes. Uh, it's not the future and it's certainly not the way we should be living our lives. We don't live our lives in little, you know, self-contained boxes. We don't learn in self-contained subjects quite it's delusional I think it's lovely if we're a blend of everything and sometimes your mental health aspect will be the most important thing in your life and sometimes it will be the least important you'll be doing other things it's balance I just... then, but then you know as a bloke right I'm like well there's so many male suicides in life and then I, I had the pleasure of spending time with Tyson Fury of all people in lockdown I I picture. he's huge he's really huge. big his hands are like this you know and and but then I I don't know people think he's a pike he's this he's and I'm like wow what a bloke he is and what an advocate for mental health because he's talking about mental health and he's saying it from as the heavyweight champion of the world I've got bipolar syndrome I've had issues and I'm happy to talk about them and and this is why you know blokes need to open up because women are phenomenal at talking you know you guys talk for Britain you know and 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 whereas blokes they go into themselves and they want to solve all their own problems. And, and it's kind of a, I've had a friend's, one of my best friend or my best friend's dad commit suicide. And it's like, his, his friends in life didn't see that coming. And it's like, why is that? And it's just, he kind of gave up and he just went into himself. And it's like, you know, and, and people should be encouraged to speak more openly, you know, and, and, and say if they're struggling as opposed to, you know, the Bernie Brown stuff, sure, vulnerability is so critical. Yeah. Changed my life, changed my life so much because I had an episode when I was 21 when I ran a marathon and I was not sleeping for two months before it. Jeez. And then, uh, you know, partying too much, I guess. And then did my marathon and then had a wee bit of an episode, went to see a psychiatrist and didn't tell anyone for seven years. So I just carried that <laughs> burden. <laughs> seven years. Oh my God. But you, yeah. But yeah. You, there's a stigma. I'm seeing a psychiatrist and I'm a weirdo and, and that's not good. But I think it, what's weird is that if you're in America, they think you were weird if you weren't seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist. They'd be thinking, I, are you not doing the work on yourself? Oh, you think, I mean, yeah. Oh. You, you see this, right? But there's the, 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 it's a badge of honor for them. I'm my shrink this, my shrink that. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and, and it's like a, a sign of affluence that I've got mental health. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That help me. Whereas in Scotland, like, that they're paying attention to that side of their personality and their life that is such a big part of your life. And I, I know it can be sound a bit narcissistic sometimes, but actually it comes from maybe a good place that, you know, we're, we're very good at, oh, let's go for a run. Let's watch what we eat. But we're not thinking about what we're putting in our brains and how we're thinking about things and how we're able to express or not express stuff. And actually, maybe you do need somebody external to everything to just listen. And in fact, what might, oh, I'm reading this. Yeah. Never heard you're not listening. Wow, I like it. Yeah, it's really great. And it's I don't about. Don't you're trying to tell me something, Claire. I don't know if you're trying to tell me something. I know. 
but no, I should just put this on my head because everyone's like, shut up. Shut up, just stop talking, then we'll listen, you know. But Kate Murphy is really, is, she's an American journalist and it's, it's just, it's kind of obvious stuff in a way, but actually it's just so clear that we're used to going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and we're not deep listening and I am the worst. I, I can listen to people deeply when I have to, but <clears throat> almost like we just can't help us since we've got to interject. We did this exercise. We did this exercise once where you sit opposite someone and you're allowed five minutes each just to talk and they have to listen. You're not allowed to say anything, right? And then it's like when we're having a conversation right now, there's four voices in our head in this conversation. As my understanding of it, you've been taught this a lot better than I have, but there's there's kind of there's you looking at me and, and a voice sort of listening to the narrative, but there's a voice in your head saying, What am I going to say next? And you've got to kind of shut that up. It's that chimp paradox. Like tell your chimp just to yeah. shut up, shut yeah. up. Yeah, there's that. But then there's uh, also if you're so involved in a conversation and she would say that you're not worrying about the spaces or lining up your next thought because you're so in that moment and you're allowing yourself to just disappear into that moment. When you're broadcasting, that is the fear of God because that produces dead air. And we all know the sweats that we can have if there's dead air. Uh, if you're um, doing an interview with somebody, suddenly it goes very quiet or you can't think. So I, I mean, I have been in that position where I've just thought, God, they answered that really quickly. <laughs> I wasn't quite ready. And then you come up with some filler stuff or whatever. And then you think, what was it they just said that kind of jumped out? So then you kind of mirror that back a bit and then you're back on track. But it's quite hard to actively listen as well and stay in that moment and uh, not worry about not having a, an opposite response to things all the time. Sometimes just say, yeah, gosh. And then you can say, hey, it's got me thinking, that's got me thinking. And just say, no, yeah, gone. I, the number of times I've said to people quite often on here, no, gone, it's just gone out of my head now. What I was just going <laughs> to ask you. But that sort of that humility of being able to laugh at yourself and say, oh, I made a, an error, it slipped. It kind of it helps fill her and then you're on to the next thing. It's funny and they laugh and it's nice, we're, right? We're all human. We all do it. That's the thing we should, you know, and again, that's the lovely thing about social media and doing stuff digitally. Every idiot's doing it. Imperfect is just fine, thanks very much. You know, you can't be too glossy. Don't be glossy because then you're not being you. And actually, I love the idea that people are sitting in their pants. I am not, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're at their Their English doesn't wear pants. There you go. New oh, slide. I, I just <laughs> tell you how wrong you are there, James. <laughs> Any pants in my drawer. <laughs> my drawer's drawer. Uh, but, oh, God. I love it. I love the idea that. People aren't bothering if if the bell rings, which it probably will now because I've just wished it to <clears> ring. And uh, you, you, you can't control everything. And actually, it's kind of nice that we all know that. Hmm. And it's back to being what's human. You know, when the robots take over, it'll be boring as hell the news, won't it? Yes, it will. It yeah. will. It will. Oh, there's sunshine actually hitting my face from out there. Uh, did you, you lived out of Glasgow for a while, obviously. And so you're, you're Glasgow born. No. So I was born in Bristol uh, because I was adopted and then I came to Glasgow when I was weeks old and then most of my life's been in Glasgow uh, and then I went down to London when I got married. Can I ask, did you, did you ever inquire how did your parents adopt someone from Bristol? Uh, I think it was a churchy thing because it was a Catholic organisation and whatever you, they you had find someone at a different postcode so just to... i don't know i genuinely don't know and i've never really <clears throat> so curious about the world i'm ridiculously relaxed about my own background um 
my sister was born in Ireland and she was uh, one of those Madeline sister type things, you know. Uh, so I think she was in some awful institution for young unmarried mums. Uh, that's where she was born. And her passage over here to Glasgow was a bit more fraught. I think there was more of a debate about whether it was going to happen or not. Whereas with me, they, they were like, yeah, bye. <laughs> Just ship her up, ship her up. Yeah, Bristol's had enough of her. <laughs> so I've, I've spent most of my life here but London was a big revelation to me because I was terrified of going to London I thought no the people that go to London are entitled smart people and frankly I don't think I want to fit in with that and I was terrified and intimidated by it and also a bit annoyed by them and thought I'm going to hate it and do you know the weirdest thing happened I got down there and I worked at Westminster within about two weeks I, was like, I want to live here forever and my husband's like because no, he was trying to get up back to Scotland. He studied at Edinburgh. He comes from Wales. And uh, he said, no, I can't, we can't stay in London. It's awful. It's so expensive. I said, no, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. It was just brilliant. And the mm -hmm. work level was completely, it was a different vibe <clears throat> entirely. You know, there was a big pool of people. There were very few Londoners. There were people from all over the bloody world and all over England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland there and Europe. It was a melting pot. So it was like, wow, this is a, pr a huge metropolitan city. Glasgow is very small compared to this. So it was like, yes, bring it on. You can be anonymous. You can walk about here, look like hell. Nobody's going to bother you. You literally would have a lot of trouble attracting attention in London. You'd have to. And they'd find you being Scottish in London, it kind of served you well. Like people liked her and inquisitive. Yeah, it, did. And... it did. Uh and also that uh, everyone else going, oh taxi drivers must be really horrible. She has nope. I said they were absolutely charming. They always wanted to tell you their favourite place in Scotland. And, oh, just say that again. And I don't have a, well, I certainly didn't have a strong an accent when I was down there. I definitely, I, I am a chameleon as well. I think I flattened it out a bit. And it was a bit more, you know, BBC, Radio yeah. 4. Um, but yeah, I never get the mick taken out of me for my accent. I, um, I rarely get any problems with Scottish pound notes if I ever came back to Scotland and came back with them. They'd look at it for a second and go, all right, okay. But I have a lot of friends that didn't live in London and didn't travel very much. She had a big chip in their shoulder about the English hate us, taxi drivers are horrible to us, and they hate our pounds. And I was like, this is bollocks. Yes. I'm sorry. It's not my experience. You want attention when they come back from a, a holiday and, and want to say something controversial so people listen to them, right? Yeah, uh, I I just, and also I don't like this anti-English thing because I think, no, they're the same as us. I, <laughs> Hello? I told, yeah. you know, if I told you that, but when I was 21, I did three months down in Bristol and I can honestly say when I went into it, I was xenophobic, you know, whenever a rugby for a family, whenever I watch rugby on TV, it's anyone but England, you know, yeah, yeah. was. And then I did three months in Bristol, you know, met Banksy, went to Clifton. Yeah, Bridge. Banksy, come on, you kept that one quiet. I can't, give, I can't give away secrets on that one, you know. <laughs> how did you know it was definitely Banksy? Well, how do you know I'm not Banksy? Well, how do you know I'm not? Because I'm from Bristol. Exactly, I know. I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> do you. Did you have a, did you, when you were in Bristol, did you feel like a spiritual home in any way? What's no, it, what's uh, it was lovely, though. I loved it because I love the history and, you know, it's a maritime uh, city, beautiful, beautiful, you know, uh, gorgeous Georgian houses and things very uh, aesthetically beautiful and I love the vibe down there it's very you know it's quite it's quite an interesting blend of people a stunning bridge you know it's awful. Nice, isn't it? oh yeah. yeah I love it I would love yeah. to go back and spend more time but I'm always like flying there or flying out of there or going to Wales via it. I never seem to get there and properly stay so that's that's a mission but yeah I'd like to like to check it out a bit I, I worked in 
Filton, I think it was up in the industrial estate. Um, so Horley, the, the company up near Atkins offices in this industrial estate. And then I used to run, I don't know, I can't remember exactly. I think it was Filton, like kind of towards the town a wee bit and yeah, yeah. ran up to this industrial estate and then it was running all the time. And I went and did the Isle of Man triathlon. Sorry, not triathlon, a marathon. So around Isle of Man. And then went and stayed in Liverpool, slept on some old man's couch and then went to Birmingham for a couple of nights to see these Irish guys I met when I was travelling. And they just had a hoot. I thought it was one of the best experiences of my life just because it was yeah. fun. And then you realise the commonality and that's what I get. Humor. Humor yeah, like... yeah, yeah, you know, we're different, but we're not that different. That's the point. We've got commonalities and that's why I'm massively pro-European. Uh, maybe some people don't feel like that. In the I same way that like, someone, <laughs> someone from Inverness is, you know, and, and Glasgow are polar opposites when you think yeah. of it that way. But at the same Absolutely. time, we've got so much in common as well. And it's like... Well, I had a trip, I was very lucky. Uh, my neighbour next door uh, has a lot to do with Shetland. They used to live there and uh, run a hotel there. And I had the absolute privilege of going up to do some stuff, uh, sort of scoping out a media job. It <laughs> didn't come to anything, mind you, but it was brilliant because they basically, they showed me around the islands. They, they just showed me amazing parts of their culture, the Viking stuff, the, the food, uh, the, the mentality. I'd been there twice before with BBC Scotland, but not for long enough to really kind of immerse myself. And by God, yeah, they're completely different. Of course they are. They even feel Scottish, most of them, but they are us and we are them. And it's all, you know, we all like this, you know, we, we all want to be happy, as you say, we want to have a laugh. We want to eat nice things. We want to make sure our kids are okay. We want to be doing something purposeful. Mm. You know, that's that's humanity. And uh it's a uh, it's a funny old world, but what uh, what's the next phase or what you've been up to for the last few years since leaving the BBC? It's all been about helping students get opportunities. Is that right? A bit of that, but pottering about. I've I've got a lot. I'm very lucky. I've been doing a lot of uh, online hosting, done the TEDx stuff. Oh, uh, saw your mug. I did see your mug. I saw your mug. Yeah. Oh God, I know. I love it. Um, yeah, doing it digitally for three things this year was quite interesting. A whole different mm. ballgame. And everyone always thinks, hmm. You're presenting digitally that must be very uh, easy you know because you're sitting in your arse in your house and what could possibly go wrong and you think have you seen what can go wrong <laughs> in a live broadcast uh but i i must say i enjoyed it and we got into some really interesting subjects you do miss the buzz of being on a stage um it's great fun i mean fred mccauley and i had a ball we had a blast that year it was just so funny because we were both like what what is this <laughs> you know i think it was my second yeah it was my second gig for them uh, i'd done it with jason leach who's now the guy that does all the national health stuff who's amazing so he was the first year and the year before that i'd come to see it as a civilian if somebody had said see this is why serendipity if somebody had said to me that year it must have been 2018 or 2017 you'll be hosting this i'd have thought yeah right and i had tried to when i was at bbc scotland because they had a partnership and it never quite came off mm. and then suddenly somebody ran after me into a woman's loo and I was at a conference in Edinburgh host was I hosting or was I doing an interview segment can't remember and somebody from TEDx said have you thought about um hosting TEDx and I went, yeah I'd love to and she's right let, let me get back to you and I thought yeah that's not happening never worried about it very much and then got a phone call to say come and come and have a chat and that was the, the beginning of the relationship I'm massively invested in TED I don't know what they're going to do this year I have no idea What's your favourite TEDx yeah. talks of all time? Could you name a top three or two? No, because there are so many. It's impossible. Um, and also I'm, I'm biased because there are some that I think were special because I was kind of involved in them. So I wouldn't even 
Madeline back, to... phenomenal, right? Yeah, Isn't... Madeline's amazing. And it was really, you know, trying to, um, she had a, such a story and there was so much that wasn't said in that speech and that talk. Is it quite and strict in the kind of the T's and C's of doing a TEDx talk in a way and you have to quite, pack it um, up, right? Yeah, there's, yeah, you, you've only got a set time. Um, you've really got to work on what resonates and, and have a really good sort of strong storyline. Clever in that sense, right? That it is controlled yeah. and it makes it more engaging and things. It so. makes it engaging, but it's also massively uh, challenging if you've got a story that you want to tell in your way. It's trying to rein it in. And also you've got to edit a lot out and decide, well, which aspect of this story is it I'm trying to get across and come back to that at the end, you know, and make sure that you're not losing any of the impact. And with Madeline's, there was a lot of stuff in it that because it was such a really horrible, horrendous abuse story um, of a personal nature that, I said, well, how far do you want to go with this? And how, you know, and she said, well, how far will he let me? I said, I don't know. I said, but you tell me what you want to do. And in the end, um, I read her book and there was a lot more, <laughs> a lot more than I even knew when I was coaching her because um, I, I took that role on as well to do a couple of people. Uh, and that was, that was fantastic fun to do. So yeah, she, she worked really hard in that. She knew her story almost too well. It become, um, it was like wallpaper. It was so familiar to her. That in a way I was saying, but you're you're not punching this hole. You're not looking emotional because guess what? You've probably tried to distance yourself from it as well. And she is she's got a psychotherapy background as well. This woman's very intelligent. She can tell a great story, but it was trying to get her to bring it back to a bit more of the rawness of the feeling and the mm -hmm. stuff that was going on behind all that, and not lose the impact, but not go into too much detail because it is a difficult subject. So it was a really tricky one to negotiate. And that year, so I was there, I think I think that was my first year at TEDx in Glasgow, and, or maybe my second, but I sat there in the audience. And then, you know, the calibre of presenters was phenomenal. Um, and then Madeline came on stage and then there was this deadly silence, you know, and, and, and you know, it was like a huge admiration for what, you know, she's just done you know, to, to, to tell her story, never mind go through it. Yeah. And then... Yeah. And then the weird thing is the serendipity of life. She sat down right beside me afterwards. Yeah, that's bizarre, isn't it? And her, her husband and some of her daughters, I think were the three of them in the audience. Yeah, they were there with her. And, and, yeah. and what a proud day for them all to hear her mum on stage. And oh, extraordinary. And then she did another one recently, a smaller event uh, digitally. Right. And we did the, we went through the, a bit of coaching again because we we're tweaking <clears> a bit. And it was brilliant. I just thought, yeah, you've so got this. But it's it's a work in progress if you are and I think you might be thinking about doing this yourself it's a lot more work than you think mm. and you've really got to edit it down to what is it I'm trying what's the thing that's screaming to get out of me because you've got a lot of stuff you could talk about that would all be really interesting and again it's down to the vagaries of how I don't know how they select I mean I've sat in on panels when we've made decisions but it's terribly personal you know, whether you like something or not. And sometimes people will come and you'll think, I love the idea, but I don't I don't like the way they're telling that. Or you, yes. you'll think, I'm not sure that, you're also worried about their, you're, you've got a duty of care. You don't want to get them in a position where they're telling something. You think, God, is this opening them up to things that they maybe don't want to share with an audience, but they think they should. So you're mm. all aware of that balance. And it is surprising sometimes it's people that you think, I don't know. They've got a great story, but I don't know if they're going to be able to tell because Ted is really exacting. I'm not saying it's the best way. It's just our way of doing it. And it is exacting. And some people it fits and some people it doesn't. And yet, sometimes it's the people that have come into those audition panels that I've thought, it's not going to work. 
and they're the ones that end up being the brilliant ones. So you can never tell, you can never tell till you start I, working with somebody. And one of my uh, greatest TEDx stories was that um, my dad passed away in 2018 and I was going through this difficult time at work and I, I watched a TEDx video and it's Bob Keeler. Oh, yes. I'd never heard this bloke before, but he's been in the same industry as me and he's in, you know, obviously up in the operational and management throughout his whole career. And then I was just like, well, bloody hell, I'm just going to meet him. So I just messaged him and said, any chance to go for coffee? And then Bob being Bob said, no bother, you know. And I said, well, I'm in Aberdeen next week. Of course, I was just telling Pokepies, I was down in Glasgow. I travelled up to Aberdeen. I got, you know, Bob's given me two hours worth of time in, in Pret. And then he's just been a phenomenal mentor to me. And I've like caught up with him every six months or so. And and then, you know, he talks passionately about TED. You know, it, he, he did a phenomenal TEDx talk on values. And it's such an educational talk it's changed my career i went into culture and and studied culture on my mba because of it uh he had a brain didn't he or he had a ball i can't remember he had props because i remember discussing how he was going to hold on to them and do it yeah. and it's like belief and be and yeah. all those things and yeah uh, i'd say a really good work on creativity have you heard this one yeah. that's another one on my list in fact i think i've got my my digit yeah it's on my kindle thing now yeah yeah I've got oh, it. No. and any it's my wife's an art teacher and she's phenomenally talented. She went to Duncan wow. and Jordanson. And, uh, oh, she- great. Oh, my God. Duncan and Jordanson. I could have gone there, but my mum and dad said, you don't want to be an art teacher. I said, I think I might. But anyway, your wife was lucky. She so, went. Well, my mum's in education. So then uh, Lorraine went and started up her own jewellery business and it got, she was quite lonely. She didn't like that aspect of sitting in a studio by herself. So she decided to get into teaching. So she's now an art teacher down in, in Ayrshire and she loves it. And she's so passionate about it. But then I, I, I used to draw cartoons when I was really young and uh, and I used to do stuff that was creative. creative. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I don't know, art wasn't cool, go and play rugby. But this book, The Practice, is phenomenally powerful because it tells you that, you know, anyone has the ability to be creative and you've got to ship your work, try things, you know, and, and put your work out there and, and, and don't fear failure, don't fear rejection. And it's the Gladwell sort of 10,000 hours of if you want to be good at something, apply 10,000 hours to it and roughly so if that's you know every day of the year apart from Christmas you can do it in a year if you do it Monday to Friday uh, nine to five it's going to take three years if uh, you only do one hour uh, I think it's a week uh, it's going to take you 27 years and it's like so if you want to get good to someone apply yourself and focus and, and do it every day yeah um, and and Seth Godin is you know phenomenal um, marketeer but he says just ship your work Ship your work, keep shipping your work and get critique, get feedback, learn from people who are so much better than you and 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 put yourself out there. Whereas if you don't put yourself out there and you, know. you'll never I, know. I, and, you, and your potential is gone. But it's interesting you're talking about the practice thing. I think when I was studying history, I loved history of art. I still do. Mm-hmm. I love art. And uh, I think it was Angre, the great portrait painter, uh, who said, you must draw every day and sometimes it'll be rubbish. <laughs> And that's fine because actually that that contributes to the whole. And as long as you're doing it and using that muscle, it's a bit like running, isn't it, or something like that. Yeah. If you just keep doing it, it's not about. It's just about just repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's hard to do that in a busy world. And you know to think, oh God, I've got to carve out the time. But if it's important to you, and self-expression is, then yeah. Self-expression. That's a nice way to put it. Let's go. Did you ever meet John Byrne? Yes. Oh no. my goodness, yes. <laughs> Tell me some John Byrne stories. Well, there was great. We were, uh, I think it was I, right? A couple of years ago, I was doing in a conversation with him. He's lovely. He's great. I've interviewed him a couple of times. 
And he is funny. He's also got the best dresses. He's the nattiest dresser on the planet. I mean, literally, I was feeling... He wins awards, though, doesn't he, for his dress sense, I think? He does what? He wins awards for his dress sense. Yeah, he probably... Well, if he doesn't, he should. Um, And at the time, I think he was still with Tilda Swinton. Anyway, he was an interesting guy with an interesting wardrobe, so we had loads to talk about. And then I remember getting into on the, the stage with him about his background and his dad. And anyway, he wouldn't go there on, I can't remember what the question was. It wasn't anything awful or, you know, intrusive, but I just thought, oh, that's funny. He's not wanting to talk about that. The next morning, Sunday Mail, I think it was a big splash about how his dad wasn't his dad or something like that. I could have got this wrong, but I thought, you dark horse. <laughs> Sitting through that whole interview with me, waiting for the headlines to hit the next morning. Uh, but he was an amazing, he's great. He's a lovely, lovely, lovely man. And uh, as I say, possibly the most stylish man I've ever seen. And I'm... You- you own any of his art or anything did you yeah no i never owned any of the art but no 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 i mean it's just incredible he's just a polymath it's really when you say that it's just like oh he's just a polymath he just does everything really brilliantly but he does but that's a true creative to me that's somebody yeah, that dabbles and you what's know a poly, what's a polymath so i never heard that well, word. They can do every well a lot of things poly a lot yeah. of so uh you know for example he can he can write books he can he can write plays he can uh he, he does uh, drawings he does uh, paintings he can, he dresses himself he is just one of those all-round kind of renaissance people that you just think oh <laughs> the rest of us are in their wake he's fantastic he's and he's a really warm lovely guy very funny got a great giggle a wee chortle i love his chortle my wife uh, met him in- she brought a book and two of her students from from school, two of her top uh, art students, and and she's really, Lorraine works at a really um sort of deprived area in or deprived area of Scotland. Uh, I won't. That's maybe not a nice way to put it, so I won't name the school. But she's uh, really proud of her department and and so many kids that you know arts there higher. That's what they want to do, yeah. and it, they go on to do great things. You know, go to art school and stuff, and it's and it's phenomenal. Bring a tear to your eyes because you get some kid that's been I don't know neglected, abused, or whatever, and then they love art. And then, lo and behold, they get to Glasgow School of Art, and some of them become architects, some of them become teachers, and it's phenomenal what she can do to transform people's lives. But she took these two students. Um, I think one was in sculpture, and one was in I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know if she's a. a I can't remember. It's one of. I think she was in weaving. I think is the other one uh, to to meet John Byrne, and oh. John Byrne was cheeky to my wife he sort of treated her like she's one of the students and she was say, you know what will I put in the book for you and she goes oh just Mrs Brewster and he's like oh, Mrs Brewster you know he's taking the piss out of her for being this <laughs> so he's quite I think I don't know if he's been deliberately funny or my wife actually looked quite young at the time but um he probably looked quite young at the time and he was being deliberately funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, uh, no, lovely. yeah but uh, yeah what a, what a cool what a cool career you've had though it's, it's, it's inspiring. I'm hoping it's not over yet. <laughs> you know? But uh, I haven't retired, as you so elegantly put it at the beginning. Have you got sights on running success? Are you going to win the Glasgow Marathon? Oh, hell no. I'm not competitive at all. I, I couldn't mm. give a stuff. No, I go out because it's... Um, well, it makes me eat nice things that I shouldn't, like chocolate and bunnies. And uh, <laughs> I've got two of them waiting for me. And uh, it also hits headspace. It's like, I okay, things are getting a bit on top of me. I'll go out for a run. And then I'll just be worrying about staying conscious and not dying. Mm. And that's good. And yes, I did it. I, I'm not a great runner. I never will be. But I love being able to do that. It is a good, it's a little faucet you can turn off when you're getting a bit too <gasps> about the world. So, it's a nice Americanism, right? 
it's an Americanism. I'm sorry. Did about that. Did I don't, don't apologise. There. Did that? Did you have that in your twenties and thirties, like running in sport, or did no, you? No, I'm not going to give a shit about it. No, no, oh. not at all. Husband's very sporty. Uh, daughter, no, she wasn't either. <laughs> then she got more sporty. But no, this is something maybe from my fifties. I think I just decided eh, it's all going south. It's horrible. I don't feel great about myself. It wasn't even about the image. It was about, actually, I'm just oh, a bit rudderless. So what am I doing? And there was all sorts going on with mum and dad's Ill, Ill health and stuff. And I thought, if I don't find a way of coping with that, then I'm in trouble. And so it all kind of came together. Uh, I walk a lot now. I'm going to go for a walk after being for a run as well today with my friend. I'm finding that delightful and weird that we're getting pleasure in walking around our cities and it's a nice way to talk right you walk and talk it's a great way to just uh, cover the miles and just uh yap 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 and i'm talking about city i'm not talking about going up a hill or anything actually going up a hill's killer for me because it's just like oh god you have to listen then in those instances claire that's the problem listen it's breathing (laughs) the problem you got (laughs) flat good flat good But I think I've theories on that. So if you if you played football, five side football in your twenties, okay, by the time you get to thirty, your knees are shot. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're talking about the days of old when you used to be knocking the door of playing for Scotland. Whereas <laughs> if you if you find running and sport later in life, you're like, well, your body's actually you know not bad. Nick, it was a genius move, but I didn't realise it. <laughs> I just thought everyone else's knees are shot to buggery, and I'm so far so good but yeah I mean there are many other bits hanging off I can tell you uh definitely <laughs> person and not competitive as I say so I'm not interested in personal best I'm not interested in running with other people I have run with friends but again I just find it exhausting oh for god's sake you want me to talk and and breathe and run at the same time no uh so I like running on my own I stick the podcasts on and I'll listen to a lot of people talking stuff that I don't know anything about I love and- that that's and a my plug, BBC Sounds, I guess, would that be going BBC with? Sounds is great. Uh, absolutely wonderful. I have discovered the joys of Radio 3's late night stuff. Have you ever heard the late night stuff? There's a no. night tracks or something program that's on about 11 o'clock. It's bizarre. It's the most amazing soundtrack. It's such a mixture of stuff. So one minute you'll have sort of electronic music or you'll have bird <clears> sounds and then you'll have some vintage 20s. And then you'll have a bit of, oh, I don't know. It's so eclectic. I mean, I love Radio 6 music as well. And I love my, my spoken word because my spoken words, that's Radio 4, Radio 5, uh, and, and loads of podcasts from outside as well. So, Did you get quite, like, I don't know, do you, do you travel the world for that? Yes, you get access to loads of different people from that. I, I love traveling. Uh, and I'm really sad that the dogs are barking. Uh, I'm really sad that we're not doing it at the moment. Um, my daughter lives in Barcelona. We're dying to get out there. It's culture. I love it. I had an idea for a podcast and it never came off just because Brexit and then the whole COVID thing. Uh, and it was all about identity and looking at identity in Europe and what they thought of us and what we thought of them and who were we and who were us and who were you and all this. And I will still do it. That's on, that's in the stocks for for another time. But I love meeting people because you do realise the commonality and even going to Catalonia uh, when she was there a couple of years ago, she had to do one of her years of university working in a chemistry lab there in the uni. And we met people in the town and they were just gorgeous. And we ended up being friends with them and we think we're from Glasgow and they just took a punt on us and decided they were going to talk to us and thought, God, that's that's so Glaswegian. It's hilarious. It's a bit like Glasgow, but better way. I intended to kind of, for this mostly talk season, I'm trying to cover five continents you know, use as many different nationalities as possible and people just have an interesting lives and then go, well, 
holy moly, we're not that different. We can find commonalities and have a laugh. That's and, and that's the point. Yeah. It's, like, it's not, you know, Europe, you know, South America, North America, wherever, we're all like the same, right? It's very, I know. I it's know. that big an epiphany for anyone. It's kind of just, it's kind of stand, staring in clear sight. It's just you. love it. The novelty of just meeting new people that have got different ways of thinking about stuff. It's not, a, it's not a threatening challenge. It's a joy. And you just think, yeah, we can't all agree on everything, but we've got a lot of ground that we do agree with. And, and most people focus on that 5% they don't agree with. So, yeah. you know, you're this, you're that, and I'm not, so we cannot be friends. It's like, well, hold on a minute. 99% of everything else is fucking common. I've had a lot of friends that I wouldn't agree with a lot of stuff on politically. Uh, or, you know, they have got a different take about various things. And I just think that's one aspect. And as long as it's not harming anyone or proselytizing to do something ghastly, mm. no, that's your, that's your thing. That's, that's your right to, to think differently from me. I might learn something if I listen. Oh, listening. You're not listening. You'd think I'd written this, actually, wouldn't you? <laughs> 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 but, uh, I, uh, I've taken up enough of your time. I've been a blight on your, your walking habit. <laughs> no, not, not at all. I've got a bit of time. Probably going to stick a chocolate bunny in my neck now. Can't wait. Quite right. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure speaking to you as always, Claire. A pleasure talking to you. And I hope you do do your TEDx. Let me know. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've got to fill out my application for Aberdeen of all places. Oh, chop, yeah. chop. Get on with it. I've, uh, I, I kind of I've filled out my application and they came back saying, we've got a new form now. We want you to provide a video evidence and this, that and the next thing. So you are. Uh, I'm there, thereabouts. I did a poll, actually, to try and find out whether what topic I should be. So well, doing... I think you should just say, what's the thing that keeps you awake at night thinking about it? I mean, that's what, when I get jangly, I'm excited by something. And if I can't sleep and it's going through my head, that's the subject. Hmm. So you don't have to poll other people, just poll yourself. That's a good way to put it, yeah. Uh, no, it's a nice way to put it. Hmm. I, uh, no, and thank you very much for your time and we'll keep in touch. Fantastic. Take care. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye, James. Cheerio, cheerio. Thanks very much for tuning in to Mostly Talk. That was Claire English, formerly of the BBC. Great to find out a bit more about her career and the world of media. I'm James Brewster of Mostly Consulting. And uh, yeah, just probably going to be, or we are going to be taking a bit of a break from releasing podcasts. We've got to focus in on client delivery and also updating our website. So we plan to do that over the summer. So uh, thanks very much for all the downloads and support. Really appreciate it. And hopefully we can connect in the real world sometime soon. Cheers, bye.